Nicholson. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, it's basically two guys that are struggling with terminal lung cancer who are trying to fulfill their, their bucket list. And um, in the middle of this movie, there's this scene, which is the scene you just saw, which is interesting because as I've looked at the movie and watched it again, you could, ex you could extract that scene and the movie would flow uh, seamlessly, which meant that somebody in Hollywood wanted us to at least consider the idea of, of faith. And so you have these two guys on two different sides uh, exploring the question of, of faith. You have Morgan Freeman, um, who has faith, and then you have the character played by the, the crotchety old um, uh, Jack Nicholson, who uh, resists all faith. That's what he says, I resist all faith. Um, in large part, because he says he can't get his head around it. And that's where his, he said, well, maybe your head gets in the way. So you have this, this, this dialogue between two people, one who resists all belief because he can't get his head around it, and the other person, Morgan Freeman, who chooses to believe uh, despite the fact that he can't understand uh, the terminal cancer that he has. And interestingly enough, I think the movie itself, the way it plays out, is kind of interesting. It kind of tr turns you for a loop because the guy who, from all outward appearances, is the best guy, which is Morgan Freeman, he dies. Whereas the crotchety old unbelieving guy, he's the one who actually lives to a ripe old age, which you don't expect. The good guy loses, and it seems like the bad guy wins, which kind of uh, raises some questions about understanding. Now, what I find interesting about that clip and uh, the reason I used it is because the relationship between what we believe and what we understand is an interesting one. For many, um, like the character played by Jack Nicholson, um, if you can't understand it, or you can't get your head around it, then you don't believe it. Um, that you need understanding. You have to be able to wrap your head around something in order to trust it. Um, and at, at times, that, that relationship between what we believe and what we understand or what we don't understand is a difficult one, especially when you add pain and suffering into the mixture. And yet at the same time, the truth of the matter is, is that we as Christians, as we open our Bible, as we study theology or doctrine, we come face to face with the fact that there are a lot of things about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, about the way he works that we simply do not understand. And it's okay to say that. In fact, it would be fundamentally dishonest not to say that. Now, I think for some, that might be troubling who... Um, kind of coming from a bit more of a Western mentality where you have to understand things in order to believe, that may seem troubling, and yet I don't think it has to be. Um, we find throughout the Scripture this honest admission by some of the greatest saints in the Bible themselves that they didn't understand. So you have King David, the author of many of the Psalms, who's able to say in Psalm 139, verse 6, that such knowledge is too wonderful for me. He just can't get his head around it. Uh, you have Job, uh, Job 42, verse 3. After his long search for an answer to his deep question caused by the pain in his life, um, comes to the realization that um, this is too wonderful for me to understand. He knows he's hit the limits of understanding. Or somebody as brilliant as the Apostle Paul, who's able to say at the end of his long theological discourse in Romans chapters 1 through 11, is able to come to the end and say, who has known the mind of the Lord? That his judgments are unsearchable. That is, 
they saw that they couldn't understand or grasp mentally um, with their understanding oftentimes who God is and what he has done and, and the ways in which he works. Now, as I said, that might be troubling to some. And it, even as Christians, I think at times it's troubling, uh, especially when we come to grips with or we come into a close encounter with evil and we find ourselves personally pained by an injustice and we have to ask the question, if God's there, what, why has he allowed this? That's a question of understanding. And more often than not, it causes people to question their faith. But the men of the Bible were okay saying, listen, I don't understand everything. And it didn't erode their faith. It actually enhanced it, which is why they were able to say things like, this is too wonderful for me to understand. In other words, it created a sense of awe and a sense of worship that we can't grasp God with our minds or how he works or or some of the things he does or the big answer to the why question of, of some of the more difficult things in life. Now, you might be asking the question, so this is Advent season. We're talking about Christmas. Why in the world are you talking about the fact that we can't understand everything? And really, there's two reasons why I wanted to enter into our Advent here at Parkway this way. One is, as I've already said, I think in my conversations with people, many of you, as well as conversations I've had with my own heart, is that there is a struggle, a genuine struggle between what we believe and how we understand or put together um, some of the things we experience in life versus our belief. Um, And some have walked away as a result of that tension between what we believe versus what people experience and then therefore try to understand. So it's a very real issue, I think, to come to grips faith and our reason or faith and our understanding. But a second reason is is that when when we come to the birth of Jesus, let's just be honest and say that we come face to face with an enormous mystery that we can't get our heads around. Um, Just pause and think about this for a moment. We're talking about uh, a divine being who stands outside of space and time who existed in eternity with no motion of thought. He just is taking on finite human flesh. And not just flesh, but in the form of a, a first, uh, you know, a one-celled baby. I'm going to call it a baby, not a fetus. Um, and developed just like we do and came out and cried, had to learn language just like we do. It's just like you have this, this, this wedding together, this joining together of the unlimited with the limited. You have the unchanging creator becoming part and one with his creation. Now, how do you explain that? And the answer is, I have the foggiest idea. I don't, and nobody has ever figured it out. Now, we've come up with these fancy names like the hypostasis. It's a theological word, or hypostatic union, which is uh, a theological way of saying these are two completely different natures in one person, and we don't understand how it means, so let's create a fancy word for it. Or every time we go through systematic theology, we get to the Trinity, everybody's like, I don't understand how this works. It's like, well, join the rest of the club for the last 2,000 years. How three people can exist simultaneously in one divine being and yet be distinct. I don't understand it. I find it gloriously wonderful. But there are things that we just don't understand. And so when we come to the birth of Christ, we're coming face-to-face with an amazing mystery that we can't fully understand. And if you have to understand everything, then you'll be doomed to live in doubt. But 
Having said that, just because we can't know some things or understand some things about who God is, how he works, or how this happened, doesn't mean we can't know some other things. That he has revealed some things to us that we can, to some degree, grasp and understand and believe in. And it's those things that we draw our attention to, like on a Sunday morning, what we can understand about the God who can't be fully understood. And to to do that in this Christmas season, I wanted to direct us back to an old prophet. Um, In your Old Testament, the first big prophet you find is the prophet Isaiah, um, who prophesied probably more than any other uh, prophet about the coming of the Messiah. Part of that is because his book's longer than anybody else's, but um, it's usually where we go to at Christmas time. And so I wanted to just look at, in three weeks, look at three verses uh, found in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7, 8, and 9. And I'm going to include 10 here because it completes the thought. And I'm only going to look at one truth, um, but I'm going to read this longer section. This is uh, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 52 of Isaiah, and he prophesies and he writes um, some six centuries, by the way, before Jesus was born. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our our God. Now, it might be helpful to note that this little bit of good news that was a prophecy of Isaiah's was directed to a people who, in light of chapter 48 of of, uh, Isaiah, were immersed in the shame of their own failure to be in proper relationship with the Lord. That is, they are in what historians have called the Babylonian captivity. Uh, People of Israel had been taken out of their land, and their temple had been destroyed, and their relationship with God was was in tatters, which meant that their understanding of things was completely turned upside down. And they were starving. That's who this is addressed to. People who were immersed in darkness, um, who who had watched their entire religious world disintegrate. Um, They were starving for good news. They were starving for answers. For understanding. And this is a word to people in that particular state. And it's actually quite a beautiful image. You know how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. You know, no text messaging and no, no cell phones, no um, satellite simulcast. There was no way to get message across except for usually on foot or on, on horseback. And if you're an Israelite, you're living in the mountains, you were waiting, if there was a battle going on, you were waiting for somebody to come running over the mountains to tell you good news, hey, we won. And that's the image, is people hoping and waiting for someone to run over the mountains with good news. And here he prophesies of, of, of one who will come and bring um, not only good news, but good news of happiness of publishing of salvation and of the great shalom of the Lord. Um, And and the content of the good news, according to this passage in verse 7, is the only 
quote right here, which is, your God reigns. Your God reigns. That's the content of the good news that the, the, the feet of the one running over the mountains has come to bring. Your God, despite your circumstances and your failures, your God reigns. That's all I'm, I'm talking about this morning. Your God reigns. Now, in one sense, you can say that God has always reigned. I mean, his kingdom is, is, rules over all, uh, Psalm 103. So, from the beginning of time to the end of time, we can say in one sense, in a general sense, that God has always ruled over every square inch of, of the property that he's created, every square inch of the universe, every thought, every deed, everything, period. But what's in view here is something definitive, I think. That is what the prophet is talking about is the time in which God's reign would break into this world in a way that would reclaim it. It would reclaim it from the curse of sin and death. Now, the reason I, I, I think that is because there are a number of other words in this passage which give it a sense of, of, of that it's not just talking about God's general reign, but he's going to do something. On the battlefield of history, he's going to do something to bring a decisive conquest. Now, you'll notice, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, there are three words that begin with R that talk about what God is doing or going to do. One, of course, is that your God reigns this morning. Then in verse 8, we read that you shall see the return of the Lord to Zion. And then in verse 9, you see that he is the one who redeemed Jerusalem. So this prophecy of good news is about God reigning, God returning, and God redeeming. And I believe, as Paul would have us to believe in Romans 10, because he cites this verse, that that decisive point in history in which God would establish his reign was accomplished, of course, in one place, which we have sung about, and we come here over and over again and talk about and celebrate, and that is what God has accomplished through Jesus. His birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and his coming again. Now, with that in mind, Isaiah 52, 600 years before Jesus was born, 600 plus minus, where he, he says that there's good news that your God reigns, and your God will return, and your God will redeem. Um, with that in mind, listen to another message 600 years later only this time through the mouth of an angel, spoken to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is Isaiah's good news become flesh. Now I admit, you know, one of the positives of Christmas and Easter is that we all come back to the same thing. You know, really there's, there's, there's only so many ways you can talk about Christmas. So many ways you can talk about Easter, which is good. Because we have to be reminded over and over and over and over again about the essential truths of our faith that are, that are bedrock for us, that we have to believe, and not just believe, but feel. 
So it's good for us to come back and over and over and over again. But on the other side of things, we become so familiar that they just they lose that grip on our souls of wonder, which means we kind of have to, usually what works is looking at it in slightly different lights so that it kind of breaks us out of the familiarity. You know, I had one of those little moments this, this last week um, with my eldest son, and I asked him if I could, I could share this. Um, we were on vacation, and we did the most wonderfully exhausting trip we've, we've done. Uh, drove up to Oregon to visit with my wife's birth mother that we found back in 2007 and her live-in boyfriend. It's interesting. And then from there, went up to Washington and, and, and stayed with her parents, um, which was great. And then we went on a ferry up to Vancouver, Washington to visit her birth father. Um, and his mother, which also was interesting. So it was like five days travel, and um, so that's why I said it was wonderfully exhausting. But uh, I have some relatives who are passionate and ultra-conservative in their political views, and my son loves to talk to them about it. And I just, I, I'm watching them just for hours talk politics. My, my son's 14 and a half, you know, and they're just drilling, 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 and I'm thinking, I wonder what I'm going to have to undo Usually about how screwed up everything is in this country, right? So all of this time with them, we come back, California, our own, own little Fairfield here, and we get in the car, and my son says to me, he goes, hey, Dad, you know, there's, uh, there's only one thing that's going to fix this country. I'm like, all right, Mr. Politician, why don't you go ahead and tell me your view on what's going to fix our country? And he says to me, and this is almost a, uh, an exact quote, he says, we need to give... All of the power to one man. And I, I responded something like, oh, yeah, that's called dictatorship. <laughs> Didn't work so well in Germany in the first part of the 20th century. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. No, all power has to go to one man who's good and who's just and powerful. And I... I, I said to him, well, you know, there's no one on planet Earth who fits that description. <laughs> Only one person that I know of. And he smiled and he said, I know. And I smiled and I thought, wow, you're like getting this. <laughs> you know? But, his, but it, but it kind of took the Christmas story and gave it a little bit of a slant to just realize, you know what? Um, there really is only one person who can fix this. And it's one man who is perfect, just, good, and powerful. And it just kind of reminded me that's, 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 what, that's what the angel promised to Mary, and that's what Isaiah said is the good news. Your God is going to reign, but he's going to come to reign through one man. Now... Remember taking, if you didn't take college courses, you probably took some of it in high school, but there's this, there's this uh, course, for me it was a year long, it's a history of civilization, or they call it history of the world, not the Mel Brooks history of the world, you know, and what's interesting is over and over and over again, regardless of whether it's one man in power or a group in power, and whatever the structure of the government, it always ends up in some kind of destructive cycle, Always. You can't get through that course without going, wow, this is just keeps happening over and over and over and over again. 
Now, I know some of us have bought into the fiction that back in 1776, some very smart men fixed it all. Now, this isn't to disparage the blessings of God's providence in living in a great country. But if history and the Bible has anything to say about it, this is not going to fix itself. There's only one person who can fix it. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. But the kingdom that he's come to establish and the reign that he's come is a completely different kind of rule and reign and kingdom. It has a completely different basis and it has a completely different ethic. Um, When Jesus came to establish his rule and his reign, he came not to be served but to serve. What king does that? He washed feet. That when Jesus came to establish his kingdom, he didn't establish it in the blood of his enemies or his own soldiers, but purchased his kingdom with his own life and his own blood. And that is a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. It's not by accident that right after this chapter 52 passage, we find chapter 53 of Isaiah. The only way God can reign in a way that unleashed his love and his generosity and would renovate all things is that the iniquities of us all must rest on one. That it's by his wounds and by his stripes, the one, that we're healed. That's a different kind of king. And therefore, it's a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom no longer marked by power struggles that this world is consumed with, but a kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. A kingdom where people forgive injustices and they show generosity to one another. A kingdom which has already begun and will one day be completed. And that's what he died to create. So the basis of his kingdom is a cross. Of course, he rose, and he ascended on high, and and we're told in Matthew chapter 28, and Jesus says himself, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me because of the cross. All authority. There's no categories underneath that reign, heaven and earth. Right now, he is at the right hand of the Father, and he rules over the spiritual realm and the physical realm. He rules over the big things and the small things. There is no place in the universe that he has not been given complete reigns to. And that's what Christians have celebrated for thousands of years, the simple truth that Jesus, in Jesus, God reigns, and he has established his kingdom. And right now, All around this globe, invisible to the unbelieving eye, God's kingdom is advancing in the hearts of men and women by the power of the Holy Spirit who have confessed their sin, they've trusted in Christ alone, and they're waiting for the day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he indeed is Lord, and that will be a public thing. Meanwhile, his kingdom is here, and it is growing, and one day it will be seen. And that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel of the kingdom. 
It's the gospel that Christ reigns because he died for his people. He reigns now by his Holy Spirit as he turns hearts in loyalty to Christ, and one day that loyalty of faith will be rewarded with a new creation. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus said when that gospel of his reign, the good news that he has liberated sinners, uh, hits the last person who's supposed to hear it, the end's going to come. That's the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Isaiah talked about. Now, I realize that that sounds maybe like dry theology. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But, you know, if you stop and, I mean, that's your God reigns. I just want to put it up there. Your God reigns in the person of Jesus. Your God reigns. Um, if, we, if you don't take time to pause, and I'm being, becoming a bigger advocate of pausing in life and taking time to really let truth sink in, um, probably a cultural thing, but we're so type A in our approach to truth that we go from truth to truth to truth. I want to go to study to study to study that we don't have any time to let anything soak into the pores of our faith. But a simple truth like your God reigns and understanding how God has accomplished this through the death and resurrection of Jesus and is coming again, really, if you think about it, does alter the way we see the world around us and we see our own lives. Let's, let's look at things on a, on a big level. I've already kind of made mention of politics a little bit, but there's, we just live in an increasingly pessimistic day. On a philosophical level, and this is more in educational systems than anything else, we have moved and shifted from a modernist perspective, which was overtly optimistic about human reason and the ability to accomplish good things by our own human strength. That's what they call modernism. Well, that is eroding so quickly into something that people, you've probably heard it called postmodernism, which is intrinsically pessimistic. Like, we really can't fix things. That shift has happened philosophically. And I probably don't need to tell you about politics because we see it in the news every day and we hear it and, and we feel it. The people, by and large, don't feel like things are going to be fixed. And when you have, I have some, these are news, newspaper headlines, but when you have like the Washington Post and the New York Times um, showing headlines like, like, like this, you know, new poll finds a deep distrust of government. And that's October 25th this year. And when you have our own president saying things like this in his uh, State of the Union speech, this is uh, Two, almost two years ago, that we have to recognize that we face more than a deficit of dollars right now. We face a deficit of trust, deep and corrosive doubts about how Washington works that have been growing for years. Whatever you have to say about our current president, that's an honest statement. I, I feel it. Don't you feel it? I mean, there's less and less optimism that things are going to get fixed, and we live in that. Hope is waning. And if we're not careful as believers to maintain a vision, the vision of the Bible, we can have our souls poisoned by the pessimism of our day. Our lot is not tied to who's elected or our country or the future of our country. Our lot is tied to the loving, sovereign rule of Jesus. And because of that, Phones can ring, and God is sovereign in the service, and I trust that. Because of that, you don't, you don't have to walk with your head down. When everybody else feels fearful, 
there's trepidation about the world around us, we don't have to because we do know who's in charge. And ultimately, he's our king, the one perfect, just, powerful God-man who has died to save his people. And that truth, that energizes hope and gives joy and a sense of courage in our day, which Christians should show. We live for a different hope than what's going to happen in the next election. That's, that's the Christian vision of the future. Your God reigns over everything. But then even on a more personal level f- for us, just recognizing that there is no place where we walk or talk or breathe or do any work that he does not own. I know you might think you work a secular job, but you know the fact of the matter is Jesus owns the company that you work for. He owns it, which means when you show up at work, you're not showing up at some non-sacred, secular place. That's his. And he's doing his kingdom work there in your actions, in your attitudes, in your speech, advancing his kingdom in the hearts of people invisibly as they see you, and hopefully a person who has courage and hope and joy because you're living for a different king. It's just, okay, I go to each work. This is your sovereign place for me. And I, because you own this company, this is where I'm going to work and I'm going to hold my head up and I'm going to live because you own this place and I want to see your kingdom advance here, however it's going to advance. And it also gives us just a way of, 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 of dealing with some of the more difficult things that come across our... Because workplaces aren't easy. In fact, <laughs> workplaces, marriage, raising of children, you put yourself in any context, even on vacation. It's hard. How how do you live with a sense of joy and compassion and and courage? Except to know that even in those things, Jesus still reigns. Why? Why does a young guy who lives a good life get cancer and die while an old guy smokes 40 years like a chimney, lives doing his 90s? I don't know. Why can some couples have kids, other couples can't have kids? I don't know, but you trust that Jesus reigns in it. You could go right down the list of difficulties. Your outlook on life looked great until you found out there was somebody else in your spouse's life. Then everything unravels. What do you do? Well, you you can either fall apart or you can live by faith that there is a Jesus who reigns. Now, I know that that's... Easier said than done. But you know one thing that helps me is to recognize that it's Jesus who reigns. Jesus who reigns. You know, he's, he's, he's not, a, he's not a, 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 well, I like the line of the song that Mike sung, uh, O Holy Night. There's the chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. You, know, you watch sometimes uh, the, the news and you watch royalty come out of their castles and they come down and rub shoulders with the common folk who like to rebuild tra- transmission, they drive taxi cabs, they teach first grade, you know, and they wonder how they're going to pay the mortgage the next month. And, and because they rub shoulders with them, it, it kind of gives them a sense like, well, they really care about the common folk. Meanwhile, you know they grew up in a castle. Is there really a, an identification with the pain of common struggle of humanity. The fact of the matter is, is that 
Jesus has been more than every place we have ever been. I mean, that's why he is called the lamb. The lamb who sits on the throne is a lamb that was slain. So if you find yourself in a difficult situation of let's loneliness, wondering why, just struggle with loneliness. Lord, why would you have me in loneliness? Well, there's Jesus, the one who's reigning over your life, saying, listen, I know what it's like to be abandoned by everybody. I know. You see, his reign is a sympathetic reign. He is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses and all of our suffering because he's been where we are, even guilt. Now, Jesus never sinned once, but the Bible tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us, which meant he felt the corrosive, disgusting guilt that many people struggle with. He knows, and more, what's that's like. Physical pain. Just remembering whatever, how, how could God allow this pain? Jesus is the one on the throne. He said, listen, I know pain. I know pain more than you'll ever know. And just to know that it's Jesus who is ruling over your life. That he doesn't come down and rub shoulders in some disconnected way, but he walked in our shoes in ways we can't even imagine. And that he's the one who rules over my life and your life. And just to remember, it is Jesus who is your God who reigns. The one who sympathizes with you and he never wastes his choices in your life. Now, do I understand why he does what he does? And do you? Probably not. We can make some guesses why he brings hard things along. But do we need to understand, back to where we started, do we need to understand everything to just simply trust? Do we need to understand everything to simply trust? Parkway, your God reigns in the person of Jesus who is almighty but sympathetic. And to live in that trust and to allow that trust that he reigns in your life to create joy and courage and lift your head up despite whatever happens. That's what, that's what Christmas is about. And if you're a believer, then I hope that this is a reminder of you for you to don't settle for the world's vision of a pessimistic reality because it's pessimistic. You have a king who loves you, gave his life for you, and reigns over you. And if you're not somebody who, who believes, and, you know, it's that question that, that um, Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman, well, what are you going to believe? Are you going to let your head get in the way? I'm not saying Christianity isn't a rational or understandable thing. It is. But at the end of the day, there are things we just can't understand. And that's okay. Because God's so much bigger than any of us. But he's so much more loving than any of us can imagine to. So this Christmas may be a discovery for some or a reminder for others, but um, let's live in the reality, the light, the truth, the liberation of the fact that your God and my God reigns in the person of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me?